This episode is sponsored by Kangaroo Jack Fitness, personal training that goes above and beyond to get the best results for you. Hello and welcome to episode 19 of the Game Time podcast, an international one for you this week, what with the UEFA Nations League happening. We're joined by Alan, Tom and Ryan. Guys, how are you all doing? Sup? Good. <laughs> Hello, mate. How are you? <laughs> I'm good, thanks very much. Tom, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm really great. Thanks, mate. Fantastic. Right, let's kick it off with the obvious. Let's start with England. Two very different performances. One behind closed doors against Croatia. That ended nil-nil. And then an impressive victory over Spain. What did you boys think of it? I didn't watch a huge amount of the Croatia game. I didn't think that the atmosphere was going to lend itself to a very good game and possibly was proved a bit right there. Um, I think it shows what the fans bring to the entertainment sport of football. You know what I mean? I think there's been all this stuff with the economics of the Premier League that actually clubs could survive without without the fans even turning up. I think half the clubs in the Premier League could. But I think it shows just how much of an impact fans have because that was dull. I mean, that was... It just didn't feel right as a game. Um, I caught the second half and there wasn't really... Pff, nothing to report. <laughs> Boys? Yeah, yeah. I, I felt like um, even though it was pretty dull to watch most of the time, um, I thought there was a lot of positives for the England performance in terms of especially like the couple of the chances that Rashford had. Um, if they go in, then it looks all of a sudden like a 2-0 win on... Um, away from home looks like a decent result. I don't think Croatia had a lot of um, sort of like the majority of the good chances. Um, I felt like they've missed, they're missing a lot of their key players that took them to the World Cup final. Obviously, a few of them have retired. Like you've got the uh, Subasic, like Mandzukic, people like that. They have um, sort of called it a day and you can definitely see that they're obviously a team sort of in a bit of a transition now. Um, and it didn't help that the fact that they're probably two best players, which are probably Perisic and Modric, had a bit of like, an off day. I mean, Modric is still really good on an off day, but yeah, like I said, like Alan said, it didn't lend itself to a sort of like a free flowing game. But very happy with England's performance in general. I think even though they didn't like mess miss some of the chances, they they did okay. And to come away from a, with a point, um, it's it was a good result. And in sort of hindsight, especially what happened yesterday. Yeah, I guess if we leave the creepy, eerie, silent game behind where mm. not much happened, a complete contrast against Spain where England looked unbelievable. And does that, in a way, dispel some of the ideas that England got to a World Cup semi-final purely by playing lesser teams? No, I do think what these two results show is that we can play... In, I mean, it's a semi-competitive fixture, let's call it that. It's not properly competitive, but we've now played two of the top teams. Uh, Spain have got some of the best players in the world, Croatia or World Cup finalists, and we've come away with, well, four points from those two games. So I think that does show we can cut it. Um, I thought it was a really good performance. Um, one, one thing to touch on, well, potential negative, though, is I still haven't seen a Gareth Southgate team do a good second half or play a really effective second half. And that applies to the Spain game where we let them back in. They could have easily, you know, pulled it back in that game. Uh, the Croatia game I watched the second half wasn't particularly impressive. And that sort of stretches back right through to the World Cup and World Cup warm-up rounds. Um, but no, over in the first half, though, we were we were pretty devastating on the break. And Kane was quite... Kane's link-up play was really good, wasn't it? I thought Kane played really, really well. He's one of those 
games where we looked back and didn't score, but he did everything else perfectly. His hold-up play was fantastic. His assist for Rashford's goal was was perfect and incredibly unselfish for Sterling second. I thought England played really, really well. Um, <laughs> that second half was a game that just we were just like, please hurry up and finish. <laughs> like, I mean, the Morata hit. Uh, no, was it um, was it Morata or Alonso hit the bar just before Ramos actually scored, and then the devastation on Ramos's face when they called full time just after he scored as well. But it was yeah. quite literally five minutes too short for Spain. The whole game was really strange though because the ref didn't look like he'd been communicated how much added time was going on at the end of the game. So they just kept playing. And I think the ref was looking at his watch. I don't really know what's, what's happening here. Lads, we might just go forever. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think, sort of going back to what you said about, um, about sort of like how the front three sort of interacted, I don't think that could be seen as a surprise, if, especially for someone that watches Tottenham games like week in, week out. Um, I mean, I know like it sort of like says gets leveled that sometimes Kane goes through these like little spells where he doesn't score, but he his his sort of like vision and his passing range is fantastic for for like a striker, uh, primarily like a goal scorer. I don't think there's anyone in his position that does it as well as him um, in terms of maybe maybe Luis Suarez, but Luis Suarez is probably more in terms of like as you saw from the Spurs Barcelona game. He's sort of a lot of his he's sort of dummying and he's he's aware of his space. But Kane's sort of like vision. He's better than some midfielders at <laughs> sort of like picking passes out. And like I say, it's really a, it was really good to see him sort of give, being given the time and space to sort of pick the pass up because he's definitely capable of it. And like I say, it's not really a new thing. He's, he's been doing this for about three or four years at Spurs. Like it's really it's really part of his game that's come on a, a massive amount. It's just sort of like link up play and, and just general vision. So yeah, definitely, definitely, it's it's it was really nice to see him do it in like a, a, a sort of a big stage. Well, spoken as a West Ham fan who watches West Ham football week in, week out, I've absolutely no insight into the England setup. But no, I do think he played very well. And he, he got the um, pick of the plaudits in sort of Spanish newspapers as well, reading it. Um, I mean, they were scathing about Spanish, well, how the Spain team played, but they praised Kane a lot. I think a couple of these, it's like marker paper, which is quite Real Madrid heavy, isn't yeah. it? So I think they're sort of leaning towards Real Madrid trying to get Kane. Um, which I'm sure, well, you wouldn't like, but um, but no, you certainly, certainly deserve some of the plaudits in there. Yeah, they linked up very well. Another player who probably deserves the plaudits, Raheem Sterling. His finish for the first goal was unbelievable. I think Tom messaged me at the time I wasn't watching the game. You said Messi-esque with how he just put that top bins. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a, it was a really, really good pass by Rashford and they, they broke the offside trap very, very, very well. Um, but as soon as he hit the ball, I think the hand didn't even try because he knew it was going right in the top corner of the goal. And he had no, absolutely no chance. But it's it's we've seen so many of those chances in in the World Cup and before the World Cup where Sterling would miss the chance completely and there'd be a sort of an international groan as he misses. Um, I was so pleased for him. I was so so happy. And he when he scored, he cupped his ear to the crowd as well. Obviously probably making reference to the uh, the British newspapers that consistently slag him off in what can only be described as racism. Um, it's, it was absolutely brilliant. I was, there was no, I, I'm a big fan. I've, since since um, the World Cup, I've become a very big fan of English performances and, and the way we've been playing. But I don't think there was anyone else in that squad that deserved a performance like that last night than, than, uh, than Raheem Sterling. Right. Yeah, he got, he got two goals. That, the first one I didn't realise was his first ever away goal for England in 27 appearances. 
I think he's only scored four goals in total, though. So it's not in terms of the grand scheme of things. It's not that impressive. I guess it's one of those things. It's, it's, it's just a stat. <laughs> Shitting on him scoring a brace against Spain. I know, yeah. Um, I feel like, like you said there, Tom. Though you said about cupping his ear to the uh, crowd, I feel like that could also be levied at the fact that pretty much every time England play in Spain, all of the black players get monkey chants towards them by That's the Spanish true. fans. It's true, though. So, yeah. Again, I wouldn't. I, I didn't hear, like I said, with what we've been in Belgium yesterday. I didn't really. I didn't watch the game. I'm yet to see the highlights, apart from I like, just like gold. But again, that they're, they're a fan base that has a notoriously bad reputation for treating ethnic minority fan, <laughs> players and fans. Mm. Uh, so if that was the case, obviously that needs to be followed up by UEFA. But obviously that's just wild speculation on my account <laughs> because he, he could have been doing it to the journalists. And like I say, rightly so, because he, the sort of like the stuff he had to go through in the summer was just really disheartening, especially from like a tournament where you got a lot of goodwill towards players and he, set, he was sort of left out of that because maybe he was underperforming. Um, but yeah, like I said, I, I'm a big fan of his, especially when he plays for Man City. Obviously, nice to see him then transforming that into England performances, hopefully, for the next couple of years to come. He's definitely capable. But anyone that says that he's a bad player is just an idiot. They're just saying it because they just read the Daily Mail. And it's <laughs> like, that's not true. But yeah, like I say, it's good to see him sort of like performing and really sort of taking his chances. Yeah, I think most of the unrequited criticism of... Sterling could be found on the front pages of tabloids rather than the actual back sporting pages because I don't think a lot of papers touch that sort of criticism against Sterling for no reason. Well, I think he's he's grown quite a thick skin about this. I remember uh, watching an interview with Gabby Logan during the World Cup and he said he's sort of bulletproof to this sort of thing now. And it's good to see because obviously he's picked up where he left off last season. He scored a few goals for Man City. He's now scored a few for England. Um, yeah, it's good to see because, you know... They papers don't need an excuse to jump on Sterling, and at the moment he's not giving it to them. So when will that continue? I think uh, I'd like to just pick up on that, Alan. Though is that I agree. He he his ability to deal with the criticism is very good, and he is very professional with it. But the 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 question is why is there criticism for him? And mm. and I think that that's a bigger issue in 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 terms of the whole argument. Whether it started at Liverpool when he was buying his mum a house. Uh, and then I know he was one of the players that was picked on for the poor performance at the Euros. It, I, I think that there is a significant problem with racism in this country. And it's, it's I, we, I think Danny and I have talked about this before. It's, it's, it's significantly underplayed. And the fact that he has to have a thick skin to go through this. He was not the only person who played poorly at the, against Iceland um, in the European uh, Championships, but was one of the main people who was criticised after coming home. He's one of the best English talents we have, and rightfully so, is paid accordingly at Man City. But he is regularly criticised for overspending or underspending by buying at Primark. Oh, and, no, yeah, yeah, that was ridiculous, wasn't it? And it's yeah. I'm, obviously, I'm not having a go at you, Alan. This is this is a this is a point which I think is there's much more of a, a criticism that needs to be put at the British press and how we deal with young British black athletes. No, I don't think to a certain extent he's he's unlucky as well. In the sense that obviously the England setup is blessed with a lot of good black players at the moment. I think of like Lingard, Rashford, to name a couple. But I think really when they were beginning to criticise him, like you said, initially in his career there was some lavish spending. Perhaps he didn't play uh, pay himself so well at Liverpool. That really lit the touch paper, and everyone sort of. I mean, newspapers will will print what sells, and clearly, disgustingly, talking about Raheem Sterling in these terms sells copies. 
they look at it on a monetary point of view and every time they keep talking about sterling like that it sells papers so maybe it reflects more well you know it almost reflects the state of what the british public are wanting to see but yay england <laughs> danny <laughs> you, you you must have an opinion on this this was your dissertation was on at uni yeah i think it's very it's very poignant to see how certain organizations deal with the issue of racism comparing it to how they deal with other issues so for example i mean me and tom talked about this um earlier jose Mourinho said something in portuguese the fa got a lip reader it was found out that he said something offensive and has been charged or fined he's got to he can appeal if he wants but that was all within the space of what a week since Manchester United played Newcastle yeah. last weekend. Then you compare that to how the FA dealt with John Terry racially abusing Anton Ferdinand. They postponed the hearing so that he could play in the Euros for England. And that, that just seems mental. It, surely it shows that they don't actually give a shit about racism if they're letting their player continue to play and then they'll go, oh no, we'll deal with it later because it doesn't matter. You could ban him from the game for the rest of your life. But the fact that you've taken the step to allowing him to still play shows what you think about racism. The same thing with the way Liverpool dealt with Luis Suarez. Mm. They like, they wore shirts like he died or something Hmm. to defend him. And it it annoys me. It, It angers me that something as important as racism and not just racism homophobia sexism these are all things that are so prevalent in the game and especially i think we mentioned it before we went to a non-league game a few weeks ago and the amount of chanting from the fans of a homophobic or sexist nature is unbelievable but will never ever get picked up on and i just think sometimes the fa uefa fifa whoever they really need to get their priorities sorted because, honestly, a bunch of old white men are never going to deal with racism the way it should be dealt. Uh, that's, that's fair. Like you said about the, it's like a trivial, a trivial example. But um, and I know that sort of you have more evidence to back this up. You, you too, and, and Alan as well. But um, I know, I noticed something the other day about the fantasy Premier League. You said about Raheem Sterling. He was been not selected by a lot of people because of like what people say about him in the media, even though he's consistently one of the highest point scorers. Mm. You see like his, you know, like on the, there's like a graphic when you go on fantasy premier league and it says like points that have got, and then the percentage of people that have them in his team, in their team. And you've got like Cade and Salah at the top and there's like 99% of people have got them in. And Sterling's is in like single figure percentages. There's like 8% of people have got him in, in their team, even though he's a really valuable footballer to have mm. in terms of goals and assists. People just, associate him being bad because of the articles that are said about and things that are said about him so again like i say it's definitely you said about like racism or like these these views sell in papers they definitely do because like i say the people are actively going out of their way to praise him or, or put him in like a fantasy team something as trivial as that because of what people are saying in the papers even though the evidence is there suggests he's a good player we've detoured heavily away from <laughs> There's the only other thing which is england related which i didn't watch the croatia game but the, the fa put up a video today i think it was um, of an alternative angle of what it sounded like on the pitch, um, because you could you can just hear that all the players shouting the whole game because there's absolutely no 
um, no noise from the crowd. And it's at, it is fantastic because it's 90 minutes of Jordan Pickford shouting fuck off at every Croatian and English person <laughs> in the stadium. <laughs> he's set, he, it's brilliant. No, it's, it's fantastic. And uh, you get to hear Carl Walker give it some big into some random Croatian person as well. So it's fantastic. Do you hear Henderson as well having a go at the uh, Croatian manager? No, no, I haven't seen that. You don't. Um, one of the um, bits of one of the match match reports I read, and, and apparently you were saying it's like Kodalic appealed to the ref over a foul that Henderson did, and apparently Henderson turned around and goes, "Fuck off, mate! Who you think you are, the ref?" Like, right in front of him, like, he's got no. Chance. I mean, he's a Geordie Englishman anyway, so he's got no chance of understanding what he says. <laughs> it's like Eastern European man, <laughs> but it's just really funny the way he's just he's still like part of football element to it. Like he says, "Oh, fuck off, mate!" You don't know. <laughs> even when you're getting paid like how much are you playing for your country it's fantastic I had, no I did hear though about Jordan Henson he, he apparently was very vocal during the game mm. um, yeah but, you wouldn't expect that he's a shrinking violet usually isn't he well no basically, <laughs> basically running the show just as a point like compared to Kane who's apparently quite quiet comparatively which he's part of the he doesn't need to say anything let's, let's his boots do the talking <laughs> <laughs> is that what you want from a captain though don't you want him to be a bit yeah, more I um I always take the view of um you, you look at sort of people if you have to shout to get your point across you're obviously not doing it right on the training ground you, you, you've got a way to prepare if you then have to shout at people for not passing it out to you at the time then you, you obviously you need to spend some a bit more time on the uh, working on sort of uh, tactics and stuff but yeah I don't know like Henderson like I say Henderson has his limitations as a player but he is quite vocal. But I felt like we looked a lot better from what I've seen. We looked a lot better in midfield without him, almost, on uh, Monday. So, But again, that was a one-off game. But interesting yeah. to see whether that's going to be a theme now, if Henderson maybe is not favoured for someone like Barkley or Winks. Or, um, I really like Winks in there. I really hope he has, if he has a good season with Tottenham, I don't see why not, because he's oh, a yeah. good player for us. <laughs> one, of the, one of the biggest tragedies that happened last season was the fact that he got an ankle injury. He was looking really good up until about November. Then he had an ankle injury, didn't come back, had to have surgery in the end, went off to like Dubai to recover. And I think if he'd have had, like I said, a good season last year, he'd have gone to the World Cup. Yeah. And he could have been the difference. Like I say, someone travelling with the ball and playing through balls, he could have been the difference between a couple of the knockout games and maybe... Yeah, I recall the game against, I think it was Real Madrid last season. Oh. He was, him and Deli Ali were almost running the game. I know, it was crazy, especially the one at the Bernabeu as well. Like the, the home game as well, but the Bernabeu one, he was just making Cruz and Modric look like absolute mugs on his own. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, hopefully uh, yeah, hopefully it has an impact. Because I think I was saying in an early one, that's exactly the kind of player we need. And that's exactly the kind of player that we, we sort of came a cropper against Croatia and Belgium because we didn't have a ball player in the centre. You know, Jordan Henderson, as you just said, has his limitations in that sort of in that sort of role. But, yeah, no, it'd be great great if he can kick on. You're saying, you're saying the right things, Alan, because Ryan has shares in Harry Winks. <laughs> oh, does he? Yeah. Hmm. I, um, I, put, I put yesterday that he's the saviour of English football. <laughs> uh, that's, been, that's been noted before. I, I did hear you were a winker. <laughs> Something else, yeah. <laughs> well, England look like they continue their upward trajectory in international football. A team that's Looks like they're probably going the opposite way is Germany. Having lost 3-0 to the Netherlands at the weekend, they're playing France as we speak, so we have no idea what the score will be probably when we finish this podcast. But 
It's all right, mate. I've got it on now, so I'll keep you updated. <laughs> Cheers, mate. No worries. What's happening with Germany? I think we can all agree it's a real shame. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm really gutted. <laughs> um, I feel like it's not. They're not taking their chances. Well, they they are creating chances still. A friend of mine, we were talking about this earlier, like my, my friends from home, and he said apparently he's stumbled across a statistic that they've, out of the last 107 shots they've had, they've scored two of them in, in games. And it's like, that's probably the problem there. I mean, if you're not scoring it, I mean, they haven't scored for the three games in a row now, which is the first time for a long, long time they've not done that. Like, it's, it's in their history. Yeah. And you, and you go back, like you look at the um, you look at the World Cup, like you say, the, going back to the career game. Sorry, and like I say it's really sort of a bit of a they're at a bit of a crossroads now. I mean, like I say, they're, they're by no means a bad team, but yeah, it's maybe there's some sort of issues with sort of self confidence in some of the players. I mean, that's the problem. I think in the final third, they're looking quite poor, really, because against against Netherlands, they could have quite easily been two 0 up, three 0 Um, they let. Holland come back into it and and they took their chance as well Holland but yeah it's not looking like a Germany team at the moment is it I don't and talk about the Spanish press being scathing the German press um, are, are very negative about and very bleak about the outcome of German football I think they're, they're saying this will not get better was the main headlines um, and uh, it's beginning to well I think you start to sort of question all of Jochen Lowe's decisions, I think everyone prior to the World Cup was confused about the Sané omission, but they respected the decision because of what he's done with the national team and how, how far he's brought them along. But, you know, all the decisions like that, there's going to be a microscope being put on all of them. And, you know, a lot of them aren't turning, even, even though Sané's been brought back into the fold. Um, a lot of these decisions which were coming off for him before are, are not anymore, are they? Two words. Miroslav Klose. <laughs> <laughs> that's 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 my that's my question is if you exclude Thomas Muller, who I don't think is a centre forward, is close to the last centre forward that Germany produced. They don't have any strikers, do they? They've got Timo Werner, but I think he's a completely different striker to both of those. Wasn't it Sandro Wagner? They're trying to, they're thinking about yeah. pulling him into the team. I mean, Germany. I mean, I mean where do, how, how do they not have any good strikers? I'm well, just... they've got. Like I say they've got. They have Mario Gomez, who in fits and starts was a, <laughs> for, for a bit. I mean, he's not, he wasn't as good as um, Closer by any means, but like he, he fulfilled the job because, like I said, they do like to have a physical presence up front. It's very rare that you sort of see a player starting regularly in Germany that uh, in German football that's sort of like quite diminutive as a forward. Their game plan suits like a physical presence, someone that can head the ball. Um, and maybe Werner isn't that player. So they just have to, let's say, find a, a new way of playing. Because otherwise, they have a lot of players in the team that do the same sort of job. You have like Royce and Sane and whoever, like cutting in from the wing. And then you have like a, um, players that can pass the ball, like um, obviously when he was playing like Ozil or like a, a playmaker. Um, obviously, Ozil is now retired, but that, that sort of thing. So maybe they just need to find a new way of breaking teams down. As as I say that, as um, Jerome Burting absolutely twats it out of play, <laughs> <laughs> just trying to like nice little bit of interplay, and then he just absolutely gimps it out for a throw-in. Thinking back, so 2002 World Cup, Germany lost to Brazil in the final. Then they went through a couple of years of rebuilding because I think even in the 2002 World Cup, that they were still having players like what Oliver Neuville and that sort of player, and it wasn't really 
the way the German team thought the future of that team was going to be. So they took a hit for a couple of years, then obviously came back with a completely different team for their own World Cup in 2006, got knocked out in the semi-finals. Greatest day of my life. But... <laughs> I knew you were going to get somewhere. I knew you were going to get all that. <laughs> but what I'm saying is, do you think they're just now going to have to go through another few years of maybe a little bit of rebuilding, finding a different form? Maybe that means Joachim Lowe maybe stepping aside? No. I, I think one thing to note is that it's impossibly hard to follow up a World Cup win. I think that the record of teams in the World Cup uh, proceeding a winning World Cup just shows that a lot. But it was only four months ago that we were saying Germany have four potential full squads that they could be taking to the World Cup, two of which were mostly under 23. So I think maybe it's a case of resting on their laurels. You can get... And a lot of the team that went to the World Cup in Russia... Oh, my God, my brain. Um, in Russia, in Brazil. Um, <laughs> Russia. Um, was was the team that were playing in Brazil. Excellent, yes. Um, and I think you can rest on your laurels, but I think there's plenty of talent to follow up. Whether Lock and Lowe's the right person to take that team forward is another thing. They've just scored a penalty as well, by the way. <laughs> there's, a, there's a generational thing there with them because I think there's a generation of players that were deemed to be the next dominant positional player. So Guys like Maximilian Meyer, who plays for Palace now, I remember he when he was going to be a, a top talent, and Jonathan Tarr and Nicolas Suhl and all those type of players, young German players that maybe haven't progressed as they would have anticipated and, and gone into the first the starting lineup. The thing with Germany is whatever happens, they're probably going to win the World Cup within the next two or three goes. So, <laughs> so, the, so they're yeah. one, they're one nil up at a penalty at the moment, Germany. Yeah, Cruz has just scored. I mean, the penalty was a bit. Harsh, anyway. Let me just record a brief into it. So I think Germany are going to turn this round. Joachim Lowe will <laughs> be able to motivate his player. Possibly, you know, get their tactics right, go down in the box, get a penalty. Who knows? The world's their oyster. Um, but I think they can do this for, you know, possibly all of the game. <laughs> but no, it's a relevant point. Like you say, you said about that, um, they reinvented their sort of like their technical approach to players after the... Well, it was sort of 2002, and then the big one was the 2004 Euros when they got dumped out of the group stage, hmm. which was a very agreeable group. They had like Czech Republic, Netherlands, and uh, Latvia, if I remember rightly. And, and after that, they could see there was like a malaise had set in with the national team. Um, but like I said, I think it's just it's just generally just teams go through peaks and troughs in general. Like I say, look at Spain over the last few years, like especially like the fallout from their 2014 World Cup. Um, you look at like, how they've not particularly recovered. Like, obviously, they got they had a disappointing World Cup last time. Um, the 2016 Euros again wasn't their sort of best performance, really. So yeah, maybe like I say, it just takes a couple of times to to really sort of settle down into a good rhythm in after football, and teams just become dominant and then fade away, and then they come back again stronger in five, ten years' time. Just happen, unfortunately. Like I say, you get like a crop of players that isn't up to standard or. Uh, mismanagement, and then all of a sudden, like I said, they lose their m- momentum. But I think, like I said, they're still they'll still be around the fringes of the next few tournaments, especially in the last like quarterfinals, semi-finals. I think you're right there because just think about you know how how much of a drop off that Holland have had, mm. a, a team that's been dominant in previous years, but obviously there there wasn't the youth follow up to to match those players that were retiring. Um, same goes for Portugal had a brilliant brilliant generation of players in the early 2000s 
Um, and that and that dropped away. These things are sort of cyclical. It was only about five years ago when we got done tight the World Cup again. We were saying our youth setup's not as good and we should be mimicking Germany, Spain and all of that. And now we're looking at a, a generation of, you know, 16 to 19 year olds that are being called some of the best in Europe. And we're saying our, our youth setup is now improving and in some cases superior to some nations. So I think you're right. It, it can be cyclical and, you know, teams rise up and then maybe rest on their achievements and others fail and then sort of rebuild. Well, if we're talking about teams in a cyclical sense and rising up, is this the start for Gibraltar? <laughs> I thought you were going to say Italy then, mate. I was prepared for Italy. I thought I was that... to go with Gibraltar Italy. I, they, they've started to ride the wave. They're on the surfboard. They've paddled out into the water and they're standing up now. Obviously, we're talking about Gibraltar beating Armenia by a goal to nil. Honestly, how... It's it's a bit of fun, yes, but how big of a result is that for Gibraltar, and how much of a plus for the UEFA Nations League do you think that is? Absolutely massive. <laughs> <laughs> and I say that with only a hint of irony as well. I believe um, like I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago um, when the team there's a team from Gibraltar that got into the sort of the qualifying stages of the Europa League, and I mentioned about like how the money from European competition and regular sort of games could reach or sort of like really get the FA moving in the right direction. And like I said, this Nations League, I believe, is the same sort of thing in terms of um, it's allowing them to play teams that are more to their standard rather than just getting hammered like by Germany or whoever. Because um, that that realistically doesn't have much of a an impact. Like getting battered every week is just going to sort of demoralise the players. And this, like I said, it could be, obviously, they're going to have very limited resources but um, compared to other national teams. But like I say, it, it, for a sort of like a PR thing, it'd be fantastic for them for the next few, few days. And um, yeah. <laughs> like, you get such, all a, classic... such a short-lived fall from grace. Yeah. Two <laughs> days, it would be yeah, fantastic. Like... <laughs> <laughs> you know, you get like the classic, like, oh, um, the, the, these people are like, normally they work at a, a butcher's shop or something like that. And like, the um, one of them's a tax man. And like, they always get the stories and they come out like, same with the FA Cup. But yeah, like I say, maybe it, the money that they get now, they can fund into some sort of youth movement and they could become like a, a respectable European nation. They're never going to like qualify for a tournament probably because of the size of the place. But it's rather than that, they just turn into like another version of a team that just gets walloped every time the qualifiers come around. Because that's, that's not what international football should be about. It should be competitive. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's great to see. I think it's actually, it's, you know, in the upper echelons of this tournament, uh, the England-Spain game was paid at a, a good standard and a good sort of tempo and quality, and it was it didn't feel like a friendly, did it? And then no, no so, towards the lower ends, so like you say, you've got actual competitive friendlies, and you haven't got these teams like Luxembourg just getting zero points and and ending up with minus thirteen goal difference. Obviously, mm. San Marino are still on minus thirteen goal difference and still yeah. picked up a point, but that's you know that's fine. That, that's another sort of issue, yeah. but. No, no, it's like, good to see, and that's that's exactly what this was set up for. Mm, it's like Gibraltar winning. It's amazing. But like I say, Luxembourg, they're, they're top of their group at the minute, and obviously one team from League D will end up in the Euros in 2020. So um, that'll be interesting to see how that goes, whether like a team that's maybe never qualified for a tournament can get in. Someone like Belarus or, like I say, Armenia or um, someone like um, Luxembourg 
But Luxembourg, last last time they did the qualifiers, they got a nil-nil draw in France against France. And they've got like, like I said, they're another team that's got a team in the Europa League. They're in with AC Milan. We, me, me and Tom mentioned that mentioned on the podcast before. So like I say, it's hopefully it will just bring the sort of like the barometer of national competition up. So everyone's on the, a similar sort of starting point, right? Like I say rather than just getting hammered every time because there's no benefit in that at all. I, I'm kind of hoping it's Azerbaijan that makes it. Heroes. Last time I heard their national anthem, I genuinely almost died of dehydration for so long. <laughs> 25 minutes, I think. It is. <laughs> right, so that's going to pretty much wrap up the international part review of this podcast. I am going to mention the fact that Italy beat Poland 1-0 and we made them get relegated as the first team. That's the best thing that's happened in Italian football in a while. Also, for all you non-Liverpool fans, a good aspect of this international break is that Keita, Salah, Van Dijk and Mane have all been injured in international competition. <laughs> oh, it's exactly what you want when you're heading over to Huddersfield for a crunch game. Oh, yes. Right, so it's time for my favourite part of the podcast, and Alan, you're debuting on it. It's our unpopular opinions. I'm, I, I've kept really quiet, but I'll tell you something. Honestly, I will love it if we beat them. Love it. How wrong is the game? Well, it's your opinion. You know, it, again, it's a game of opinions, it's, and you've got a right to your opinion, but I've also got a right to my opinion. Alan, seeing as it's your debut, <laughs> why, don't... <laughs> why don't you kick us off? Southgate's a limited manager and uh, Sir Sam Allardyce would have taken us to the World Cup final. Oh, God, no! I fucking hate Sam Allardyce. <laughs> he got a ribbon last week as well, didn't he? <laughs> From you. <laughs> oh, no, this couldn't have started any worse. Oh. Okay, Alan, what is your evidence to back this claim up? Uh, justification. The World Cup group, I, I don't think there would have been any particular issues with getting through that group in second. True or False. Uh, getting through in second would have been a problem because we'd have had to play a qualifier, wouldn't we? So maybe there could have been issues there. Um, but do you really think the style of football would be at the world, No, no, it wouldn't. It would not have captured the nation. Wait, do you mean? Do you mean at the actual like, World Cup? Or at the you... actual World Cup. At the actual World Cup. So do you, do I think that Sam Allardyce could have beaten Panama? And I don't even know who we fucking beat in the first game. <laughs> Tunisia, yeah. Okay, Tunisia, Panama, Sweden, Colombia, and then Croatia. I think so. Sam Allardyce. So we will, but I think. <laughs> you want to say called now, so then I may as well just go. As I discussed last week, you can you can never knock him for sort of what he brought, some of the things he brought in in terms of statistical analysis. But the, the absolute stodgy brand of football that he played does not lend itself to knockout football. It lends itself to staying up in 15. <laughs> imagine, imagine the absolute carnage that would have happened when we went one up against Panama and then immediately headed for the corner in the eighth minute. <laughs> I know what we have, we hold. <laughs> Hey, a one nil is a one nil, and it gets you through. Yeah, that's fair. All I'm, all I'm, that's, that, that wasn't my point. My point was that we would have got through the group. We would have still beaten Sweden and Colombia. Uh, at a bare minimum, he would have matched Southgate's achievement, and I think he would have gone one further, quite frankly. Because I'm, I, I think the Croatia team was there to be had, and I'm not sure if 
Southgate was that tactic had the tactical nails to do it. I think a couple of points there is that he substituted horribly throughout that tournament. He he didn't react to games very well at all, and um, and I think so. Well, Sir Sam Allardyce, <laughs> who would have been called, is a lot better in that, and and his teams are a lot harder to beat as well. Look. Who who would who would Big Sam have brought on to make a bigger difference? I'm curious about this as well. Kevin no, it... Kevin Nolan. <laughs> Listen, don't knock. Getting our first cap. <laughs> he would have let loose Ravel Morrison to nut every player. Listen, <laughs> I, it's not about different players. It's, I think it's about having an impact on the game earlier. And you can't disagree that. Sometimes um, Southgate was making subs in like the 85th minute when the game was already not away from England. It was already wrapped up and sometimes you just wanted him to make a move earlier. Hmm. So that's the, that's the aspect where I say he's limited. But um, I, I, I would also argue that we probably wouldn't have got there and, and had time to impose, like obviously Southgate, after we qualified, he then brought in a back three, which Allardyce would not, I think Allardyce would have rather have brought in a load of children to the uh, starting eleven rather than <laughs> play anything apart from four four two. Um, so I just, I, and I do sort of, I remember at the time when he got given, Allardyce, when he got given the England job, I thought, okay, this may be, it'd be interesting to see what he can do with sort of, supposedly better resources because you look at the teams he was managing before and they had comparatively poor budgets and squads or whatever and because he's always like sort of fighting relegation and it could have been maybe like what happened when Harry Redknapp went to Spurs like obviously he had a bigger budget to work with had some relative success there and I thought okay maybe that could happen but I I, I massively disagree that we'd have got anywhere near the semis if he would have been in charge. As soon as the first sniff of, a, of an important game, he would have gone five across midfield. He would have said, right, let's go for penalties, lads. And then just would have got mauled probably about two or three nil by Columbia. And that would have been it. And then he'd have been just uh, leathered I'd, on the line. I'd, I think he would have battered them one nil, Columbia. <laughs> I can't, I, can't see, I can't see any justification. I, I can't see why you've brought in any factual evidence to back this. <laughs> I think Mark Noble would have kicked Modric a lot, <laughs> taken a tactical red card, and then we would have gone, yeah, nil-nil penalties through to the final. <laughs> then got to beat about nine-nil in the final by a technically better French team. Oh, no, no, absolutely. I think we would have been, it would have been a massacre in the final, but I think we would have been there. I do, I do think that. <laughs> and everyone, everyone would have hated it. The whole thing would have been horrible. We would have been in a World Cup final and everyone would have been miserable. Yeah. Absolutely miserable. No, no Jules Rennais is gleaming. No Three Lions. Everyone would have been depressed. Imagine how happy Big Sam would have been, though. Uh, yeah, he would have been crazy like, mad about it. So arrogant. All the bungs. <laughs> people, even though he's not even a, he's not even doing any transfers. Just trying to try to sign JJ Okocha to play for England. your <laughs> <laughs> oh, agent. All right. Well, Alan has made his his debut very very clearly. That's a fifth minute substitution, two footing someone, and instantly being red carded onto the pitch. Tom, <laughs> Tom, please. Unpopular opinion you want to <laughs> please, please help. So my, my unpopular opinion follows a similar line to Alan's in in its um, it's a quote from Sam Allardyce. Oh, uh, no. I think that 
he's right when he said today that Eric Dyer is as good as Sergio Busquets, or as I like to call him, Stephen Biscuits. <laughs> Why are we giving Allardyce the time of day on this podcast? I just, no. I just don't know what Sergio Busquets. I mean, is he would he be any good if he didn't play for Barcelona? Uh, yeah. What does he? I mean, Eric Dyer did some. The challenge he put in on Sergio Ramos was was beautiful, <laughs> Inc- incredibly pointless uh, because it went out for a goal kick, but it was brilliant. <laughs> I just, I just don't get Stephen Biscuits at all. I've never seen. Biscuits so lost in a game as I have seen Dyer a couple of times this season though. I think against Barcelona, against Spain earlier on in the season, the first game, um, he just looked like he couldn't have any effect on the game. Lionel Messi would like make Dyer look like fucking Perlo though. I mean, like, don't need to worry about that. <laughs> uh, I, I think that as much as I dislike Sergio Busquets, a, his name doesn't translate to Steve Biscuits at all in English. Is it Sergeant Pants instead? It's not that also. But I think he's he's understatedly very good. A lot of people just think he just kicks the shit out of a lot of players, but he he adapts his game very well to play against pretty much any opposite. He very rarely has a bad game. Gavi and Iniesta for fucking seven years. <laughs> yeah. Like what? Well, he doesn't have to fucking do anything. It's like the fucking old Barcelona keepers. Who cares how good Victor Valdez was? He played in front of Carlos Puyol and fucking Piquet at their primes. I could have done that job. <laughs> but it says something that he's in that team and stands out. And it, it is... does he stand yeah, out? We're talking about him, aren't we? Yeah, because I'm saying how shit he is. <laughs> he's certainly not being bad at the minute. I, I just don't know what he, I, don't, I think he gets a he's he's one of these players that everyone praises and I think Sam Allardyce made the point that if he was English you wouldn't praise him in the same way I get where you're coming from Tom but like I say you said about this um, before we sort of talked about it briefly when we were talking earlier and you said about like, the idea that maybe it'd be interesting to see even though he's a bit older now but whether he will get maybe or his limitations will be brought out now that he's not playing with Xavi and Iniesta Obviously, you've got like the midfield three from Spain. Well, I've read a couple of match reports. They said they didn't really function particularly well. You've got like Saul um, and um, who was the other one that played in midfield from yesterday? Asensio. Asensio. Asensio, that's it. And like, like they sort of left him on his own a lot. And that's when England had most of their success in the first half. So it'd be interesting to see whether, like say, now he's not playing again with two of the best ball-retaining midfielders ever to play the game. He's <laughs> <laughs> to be a shitter or whether he's going to turn out to be one of these people that just gets absolutely rinsed and then said oh he's fantastic even though he's not so someone like Michael Carrick who I've mentioned before like everyone seems to rate him and it's like well why did he only get 12 caps for England <laughs> because he wasn't as good as everyone else there's nothing to he's a nice guy amazing footballer as well and Busquets isn't even nice he's a prick <laughs> I think if you play for that team, though, you, you seem to be put into the conversation of elite footballers. And like Arda Turan played for that team, and now he's going to prison for 12 and a half years. So, co- coincidence. No correlation to those. <laughs> Just... <laughs> Just saying. Uh, I think for comparing him to Dyer and saying they're the same player, I don't think Dyer has anywhere near the range of passing that Busquets actually does. Busquets doesn't. Passes that used to do to Javi. Yeah, fucking. <laughs> <laughs> I've turned Ryan. I love it. <laughs> Case in point for me. Go back to the World Cup. 
Look at Spain's goal, Diego Costa's goal um, in the opening game. Sergio Busquets plays like a 40-yard forward pass straight to Diego Costa. And that makes me happy for two reasons. One, because it was a forward pass from Busquets. And two, because Costa absolutely wrecked Pepe and Pepe just rolled around on the floor. And oh, yeah. I remember. Everyone loved that. And also, a forward, I don't... forward pass from Busquets is rarer than rocking horse shit, mate. Like, that's really <laughs> bragging about. But that's the way that Spain and Barcelona play. I do not think it is possible to get 120-odd caps for Spain and be limited. I don't think Dyer would be making one. I think when, when Busquets retired, he is going to be regarded in his, in his position for what he does. There is no player that does anything like it. You talk about the, um, the sort of Kante role and how that's sort of defined and how... The Makaleli role and how it's sort of similar to Kante, you know, bombing around, very defensively sound. There is no one who has been able to do the same role as Busquets with the range of passes. And also, he is very effectively defensively. Maybe not in the sort of crunching tackle aspect, but he, the way he presses and moves. I think Lionel Messi has said in the past that he's, he keeps that team ticking over in the absence of um, Xavi and, um, and Iniesta. I think he is, pro- well, he is driving that team a lot now in that midfield. So I think he is effective by it. And I don't think Dyer is the same in that regard. I, I don't think that Dyer will be remembered as fondly at all. He might be remembered as a pub quiz answer of who is the footballer who actually bored people to death with his voice. But that's about it. Ryan must be bubbling with fury right now. He must get his place centre-back. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Mate, if we're going to start with that... <laughs> if we're going to start with that, then Scott McTominay has got a, a claim. Yeah. <laughs> also, um, you know, like Busquets' personality might be that of a shitter, and he might be a horrible human being, but he does have a personality. <laughs> and we are going to swiftly move on. <laughs> Bye, guys. Right, so on that uh, enraging note, we are going to call time for this episode. Mine and Ryan's unpopular opinions will be saved for next week. I'm sure they're just as rage-inducing as those two. As always, guys, thank you very much for joining us. Cheers, mate. Have a good week, wherever you guys get up to. Remember, if you enjoyed listening to this podcast, give us a rate on either Apple Podcasts, uh, we're on iTunes as well, Spotify or Anchor.fm. If you want to ask us any questions, any unpopular opinions, anything you want us to talk about next week, Game time underscore pod on Twitter or game time podcast one at gmail.com. Always love to hear from you. But until next week, see you later.